All right, if we can find our seats, we'll get started here. Uh, we are continuing through the book of Mark. This is super uh, exciting. I'm excited about this morning. This is actually the first text I ever preached on in my life. Um, so it kind of brought back some memories 15 years ago. Um, it's a great passage um, filled with lots and lots of illustrations and and points here and there, and we're going to try and cover a lot of that, and uh, we're going to walk through it. So if you have your copy of God's Word, we are in Mark chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 17, Mark chapter 2. Uh, so if you can find your copy of God's Word in Mark chapter 2 and stand with me as we read through verses 1 through 17. Starting at verse 1, it says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned among themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was watching them, teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time this morning where we can uh, peek into it, to study it, to hear it, to learn what you desire to teach us. And Father, I pray that your spirit would guide us this morning. I pray that you would... Uh, speak to our hearts and challenge us where we need challenge and to bring conviction where we need conviction. We thank you, Jesus. We ask for your blessing. In Jesus' precious holy name, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I want to just kind of walk through the story really quickly and then kind of dive into what I think are three important uh, pictures that are kind of illustrated in this story and i'll give you those up front that way you have them Um, the human condition the healthy church and the healer's call 
And so we'll walk through this. And so basically you have in here two kind of separate stories, and, and, I, and I think that they are connected. I think it's very uh, interesting how they follow one right after the other, that you have, first of all, the story that maybe many of us have heard before of uh, Jesus teaching. And I think it's interesting. It says that after a few days, he returned to Capernaum, and this crowd hears that he's at home. It's not very often we hear about Jesus being at home, but he's at home, and crowds gather uh, to hear him, to see him, probably to glimpse the miracles that he was capable of doing. They had heard of all kinds of miracles, so they come, and it says that it gets so crowded there's not even room at the door, and suddenly four guys show up with a paralytic. And, you know, we read through the story of how they. Um, wanted to get him to Jesus. They go up on the roof. They tear the roof apart and they lower him down. Jesus sees him, uh, does this incredible miracle, heals him. And then it's kind of the end of that story. And Jesus goes out again beside the sea, finds Levi, who we can later read about more. Um, and he calls him. And you get the kind of the conclusion of the story where the Pharisees challenge Jesus. And Jesus says, I have not come for the righteous, but for sinners. And that's going to be a very important point as we kind of dive into this text. And we're going to come to a conclusion at that point. And the first thing I, I notice as I walk through this text is the human condition. We have this beautiful picture, or I should say ugly picture, of the human condition um, and I think it's kind of broken down in a couple of ways. The first thing I see as we kind of walk through it, we see the people. We see a desire illustrated by the people. The human condition is pictured here is oftentimes uh, fulfilled in the reality of what is going on. That people flock to Jesus and they flock to Him for various reasons. But I think it's so analogous to our world today that people are attracted to a couple of things. They're attracted to entertainment, right? Um, they came to hear Jesus. They came to hear Him because He is a teacher that they have never heard before. In fact, uh, a couple of weeks ago, you remember we were talking about Jesus teaching in the synagogue and, it, and the people there, especially the disciples, said, uh, this is a new teaching with authority. We've never heard this before. It's a teaching that is not like the scribes, our religious leaders. And so they came probably a little bit to be entertained maybe, it's to hear something that they had never heard. People are attracted to excitement. They wanted to see the miraculous, something new that they had never seen before. And I think we, we have to be careful because as we look through the Scriptures, we can find that the crowds did this on Palm Sunday, right? They came and gathered around as Jesus came marching into Jerusalem. And many in that same crowd who were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna uh, to the king, to David, the son of David, uh, a week later, just six days later, were probably some of the same people saying, crucify him, crucify him. And how much excitement can stir the human condition and cause that. The crowds gathered because they're attracted to entertainment. They're attracted to excitement. They're attracted to energy. There's the snowball effect that as something builds, there's excitement for it. There's, wow, there's something going on there. I want to be there. I want to see what's going on. There's just kind of this building of momentum. As I think about that, and I think about this desire illustrated by the people, I think of 
um, how easy it is to be tempted to follow the crowds. But what I want us to see here is, you know, you've got Jesus, he's gone home, and all these people are gathering, just gathering. They're drawn into it like moths to a flame. They're drawn in. And I think it's tempting as humans that when something is popular, when something is exciting, when something is is filled with all kinds of energy, that we're drawn to that. And there's nothing wrong with excitement and entertainment and energy and all these things provided it's based on the truth. But I want us to see the temptation that it can be to be caught up in something just because it's popular. But you have a human condition not just illustrated by this, you have a human condition that's illustrated by a disease, right? The paralytic, born with this condition. I uh, was reflecting on the first time I taught it in this text, and I actually spent a lot of time focusing on this paralytic. I actually titled the sermon Injury Prone. I don't think I'm injury prone, but I looked back on my life and realized that there are a lot of things. You know, my, my first football game in high school, um, I was out for three weeks because of a concussion. Um, I, I've got knee injuries. I've got, uh, I had to have shoulder surgery. I, I've uh, uh, broken fingers playing basketball, all kinds of things. And I'm like, man, I thought I was tough, but I guess I'm not. But the reality is we're fragile. Physically, we're fragile. That in a moment, life can be taken. And in a moment, things can change. But here we have the perfect picture of humanity in a paralytic. He was helpless, right? Utterly dependent on others. In the good old-fashioned King James, I think the word is uh, suffered of palsy, and it's just a disease that, that racked the body and ravaged it so that they were filled with pain and torment all the time and they could not move. Utterly dependent, and I think of the reality of humanity that is that not the picture of humanity utterly helpless dependent upon god for every aspect of life not just helpless but but hindered too a life filled with obstacles that prevent him he he had one objective here get to jesus and everything along the way prevented him from getting to jesus as he's trying to go and and that's the reality of life that we are hindered from from the moment we are born because of sin and it's obstacle after obstacle that we must overcome in order to fulfill a heartfelt need to have a relationship with Jesus. Not just helpless and hindered, but he was hopeless. No hope of any cure. But this is his lot in life. Forever suffering as a paralytic. From the moment diagnosis to the moment of death, zero hope of ever being cured. No relief from the sorrows and the trials and the tribulation of it. It's a perfect picture of humanity. You want to know what that's like? Read Romans chapter 3. I think it's starting at about verse 11 where it just talks about the condition of humanity. And it's not a pretty picture, by the way. There is none that does good. There's none that, that seeks after God. They are... People whose lips are filled with venom. 
Sin ravaged the human condition. No help, no hope. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul kind of further illustrates it. He says in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. And listen to this, having no hope and without God in the world. Brothers and sisters, this paralytic is paramount in illustrating the human condition. Zero hope. And I love how the story just kind of brings them in. We see a desire illustrated by the people. We see a disease illustrated by the paralytic. There's also a detriment illustrated by the problem at hand. What did he need? He needed to get to Jesus, right? Problem after problem along the way. I mean, you can read it. There's at least four or five different obstacles that this man faced. And and I think they can be illustrated in in, in three basic things and that they are representative of so much of the human condition. You have the cot, right? A constant reminder of his crippling disease, a reminder of the inability of man that he was utterly dependent on four men carrying him. If those four men don't show up, he has no hope. The inability of man illustrated in a mat. You have the crowd. Did you catch what it says in the text? This fascinated me as I was reading this in the text earlier this week. It says that in verse 4, it says, and when they could not get near him, meaning Jesus, these four men trying to bring him, it says when they could not get near him, why? Because of the crowd. Because of the crowd. It was the crowd's fault that he could not get to Jesus. Because of the crowd, how analogous can this be of the church today if we're not careful? Gathering to hear the teachings, gathering to, to, to understand more about Jesus, all very, very good things. There is nothing wrong with the crowd wanting to hear the teachings of Jesus, but how oftentimes can the church be the very reason people don't get to Jesus if we're not careful? Because all we do is focus on Things, focus on teachings, focus on, on, on other things and neglect what is necessary. It was the crowd that prevented this man from getting to Jesus. It's a reminder of what could be the problem of religion. Not only that, but you have the roof, the cover. Another barrier that they... So they said, okay, we can't get this way. Let's go up the roof. And there it is, the roof. We're going to have to tear it apart. An illustration, a reminder of the problems of another barrier, maybe the law, whatever it might be. I don't want to get into too much into drawing out something that's not there, but there's another barrier. And so we have the human condition that, that, that is illustrated for us in this beautiful way of, of a paralytic and, and the crowd and their desires and, and the problems at hand. And what I see next is what begins to warm my heart and encourage me, and that is a healthy church. What Jesus gave to help the human condition, the church. 
I think it starts by contrasting a few people here. So we have uh, several different people. I love to when I I love narratives. I love to teach on narratives because so uh, there's so much there that you can kind of drive from, and I can, I can uh, break it down a little faster and, and more efficiently when I see a narrative. So one of the first things I do is, who's in the story? Who are the characters of the story? So you've got Jesus, you've got a crowd, you've got uh, scribes, you've got these four men, you've got a paralytic. And what I want to look at is, let's take aside the two uh, figures, the, the Jesus and the paralytic that need to connect, and look at the crowd and the scribes and the four men and see how they reacted and how they behaved. And I think that there's a contrast that is so vital for us as we start to ask ourselves, okay, so if our purpose as believers is to bring people to Jesus, because he said earlier, and we're going to go back to it, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And that's part of our role as believers is to be fishers of men, to bring people to Jesus, to introduce people to Jesus. And we are given the church as a means to do that. We can look at these characters in the story and see how they help or hinder. And and I think the first thing you do is the crowd. The crowd seems to be preventers and takers. They were in it for what they could get out of it, right? And I think we need to be careful as, as people that we are not illustrating this as a church where all we do is show up so that we can receive, we can take. Because if that's all we're doing is coming and gathering so that we can hear and receive and find out what's in it for me, so oftentimes people say, well, I just couldn't stay at that church because they didn't have anything for me. And my question to people like that is usually, well, what were you offering to them? Because that is our purpose as a body of believers is to serve one another, to share with one another, to come together to encourage and exhort. And if all we're doing is gathering so that we can find out what's in it for me, then we're no different than the crowd and we're going to end up preventing people from getting to Jesus. You have the scribes in the story. This was fascinating to me. Again, little words I like to pick up on. So remember what it said? It said that the crowd was there so that it was so full that there was not even room in the door, right? Notice what it says about the scribes. They were sitting. So everybody else is crowded, jam-packed, and here are the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, and they were seating. They were sitting there. They began to think to themselves and question the teaching and question what was going on. They were arrogant, neglectful of their responsibility. They were skeptics. They were righteous. And later on in the the story of Levi, you see how arrogant they were. They sat there while this poor man needed Jesus. Let that sink in. That if we are not careful, we can be just like these scribes who take up the most important places and prevent people from getting to Jesus. And then you have the four. The four. These guys are my heroes. How can you describe the four? I think, first of all, you can describe them as loving. Why else would they go through all of this unless they love that man? I mean, think about it. They had to love him. You don't just do that for a stranger. They had to have love and compassion. Why else would they go through all of it? But because they loved him. They were determined. What were they willing to go through? They met obstacle 
after obstacle, and they were not deterred. They endured hardships. Do you ever stop and consider what all they had to do? Have you ever tried to carry a full-grown adult male on a cot? I realize there were four of them. But let's say, you know, let's say he was really small. Maybe, you know, he's a paralytic. Maybe he had atrophy and he wasn't very big. Maybe he's only 120 pounds. I mean, that's dead weight. You ever try and carry that? Divide it up by four guys that's still 30, 40 pounds each and, and you have to walk into a crowd? Carrying. Lifting, because when you go upstairs, I don't know if you've ever moved furniture, but there's nothing more fun than trying to get a couch upstairs. Super fun. And, and, and at least for the couch, you drop it, it's not as big a deal. But carrying a man, they were carrying him, they were lifting him, they had to go up probably to lift him up above their heads, carry him. They were removing a roof. I mean, they came and they they. they I don't know whether they had tools. I don't, I don't know too many details about the roof, but they were moving tiles. They were moving something. They were, they were doing work, labor. Um, they, you know, they get up to the roof, and they, they see the roof, and they thought, well, here, we'll just take this out. And they, then they lowered him, which you have to do coordinated work. You have to, it's not just a matter of dropping him down. I mean, carrying, lifting, removing, lowering, all kinds of labor. Why? Because they were determined. They saw Jesus and they wanted to get this man to Jesus no matter what. And you know what? They were so determined. My opinion is that they weren't, they weren't concerned about other people's opinions of them. They just wanted to get this man to Jesus. I mean, think about it. You show up in a busy place. There's crowds of people and you're like, hey, excuse me, I got a man on a cot here. I need to get him to Jesus. I'm sure the people in the crowd would have been like, oh, sweet, let's just get out of your way. No, they would have been like, these idiots think they're going to get him in there. They were so not caring about other people's opinions that they went up on the roof and tore the roof apart. That's determination. They were loving, they were determined, they were believers. How else can you explain it? That they had to believe Jesus was able and he was worth everything to get their friend to him. That's incredible. And you've got this contrast of the crowd, the scribes, and the four, but there's a challenge in this too, I think. When we talk about a healthy church, imagine a church that believed and did what these men did. I mean, think about that for a minute. Imagine a church where they're able to identify a brother in need. In Galatians 6.1, we're told that if you see a brother who is in sin, you who are spiritual, go and restore him. And that's just in regards to sin. Imagine a church where they know what's going on with brothers and sisters in the body, know the heartaches that are going on, know the struggles that are going on, know what is going on in the hearts of people. And the only way that happens is if you have Communion with one another. and Fellowship with one another. Imagine a church where they do whatever it takes to get them to Jesus. Where they say, you know what? 
I know the difficulties that lie ahead, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to get my brother to the place he needs to be. My sister to the place she needs to be. Galatians 6.2, again, as Paul talks about this to the Galatians, he says, you who are spiritual, restore and care. Bear one another's burdens. That's the call of the church. Imagine a church that loves so selflessly that they would be willing to sacrifice anything for one another. Paul tells us what love is in, in 1 Corinthians 13, that beautiful chapter on, on love. And he says in verses 7 and 8, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Imagine a church that loves so selflessly, selflessly they would sacrifice anything for one another. Imagine a church that said, as these men did, that they're going to push through every difficulty in order to see it through. You know one of my biggest struggles when I start helping someone? When I get my first wall, I'm ready to quit. When I see the first obstacle, I think this is too hard. My love and my help and my desire to help this brother goes as far as it becomes difficult for me. And I get it. That's my struggle in life. So oftentimes. And I'm sure it's the struggle of many people. But imagine how the church would look if we said, you know what? I realize there's obstacle after obstacle after obstacle after obstacle, but we are going to get you through to the one place you need to be. That's commitment. Imagine a church that believed Jesus could actually do the miraculous to cure and to help. Not just we hope, but He can and He will. And this one was what got me. Imagine a church where they have faith so much so that is the very reason Jesus heals. You notice what it says when they lowered the man down? It says, Jesus saw what? Not the paralytic, not his faith, but their faith. And he said, Sin, your sins are forgiven. Imagine if the church believed in such a way that we believed that Jesus would actually heal those of our brothers that were taken because the faith of the church and the brothers and sisters that say, We believe Jesus is able and we are going to get him there. What a picture. That's what the healthy church looks like. You, so oftentimes we ask, you know, what is the responsibility of the church? What are we supposed to do? Why? You know, it's not just because, you know, I, I love, I don't remember where I heard it, but a long time ago, and I actually talked to somebody about it even this morning, that th this is the building. It's not the church. Highland Gospel Community is not 3800 North Clinton. It never will be. That's why if this building came down, the church would still exist. That's why we could destroy this place and the church would still exist. The church is the people. And if the church did even a glimpse of what these four men did, it would be incredible. I get excited when I think about that. So we have the human condition, we have the healthy church, and I think we have the healer's call. I never set my timer and they didn't set one for me, so we got all day. 
Now they're going to probably set a five-minute timer. The story goes on. They lowered the man into Jesus. Jesus sees him. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And then you get this little squabble with the, the Pharisees. They're squabbling, not Jesus, but uh, accusing Jesus. He's blaspheming. How can anyone but God alone forgive sins? And then Jesus says this incredible thing, which is easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your mat, and go home. And so he heals him. And in this, I think we get a picture of what Jesus' purpose and plans all along have been. It starts with His plan. There's three things here that Jesus wants to do. Number one, redemption. He forgives sins, right? His number one purpose, Jesus is always more concerned with the spiritual than the physical. He will always be and He always is more concerned with the spiritual than the physical. And that is why uh, uh, as we look at Jesus uh, healing a blind man, the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, um, uh, why was this man born blind? Was it because of the sin of his parents or because of the sin of the man? And Jesus says, neither. It's because God is to be glorified in what goes on because Jesus is always more concerned with the spiritual than the physical. So he will allow physical suffering if it brings glory to the Father. Super important to understand. And he will always allow suffering and trials if it means bringing a person to redemption. I can't tell you how many story after story I've heard of people who had to go through ultimate suffering in order for God to get their attention so that they could turn to Jesus. Because Jesus is always, always more concerned about the spiritual than the physical. It doesn't mean he's not concerned about the physical. You know why we say that? Because look at the rest of the story. Not only is there redemption, but there's restoration. He heals the broken. He comes alongside and he says, so that they may know I have power to forgive sins, rise, take up your mat and go home. And he restores the man, a physically broken body. And guess what, brothers and sisters, this is encouragement for me because I can know that he is concerned about my redemption, but he's also concerned about my restoration. And so that isn't just the physical relationships that are broken. He's concerned about those. He wants to restore your trials and your hardships. He wants to restore. It may not be the same as what it was before. But he is most concerned about redemption and restoration. Why? Because of the third reason, which is reclamation. He uses all these things for his glory. Notice what happens. The man rises up and he goes out. And what happens? They all look and say, amazed. Praise God. Glory to God. Notice what it says in verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God. The physical transformation was an outward indication of the power of God's inward transformation. Lives transformed oftentimes cause people to glorify God. Think about it. I'm sure you know somebody. You say, man, I remember that person before they were saved. They were horrible. God redeemed them and He reclaims them for His glory. And the results are so oftentimes I see that person and I praise Jesus for what He has done. What a beautiful thing. 
This story is amazing, but, but the story doesn't end, or at least for us this morning there. It says that he goes out beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming in, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Because not just a plan, but I think Jesus also gives us his place. So he, he redeems, he, he restores, he reclaims, and he tells us this very same thing that he tells Levi, follow me. And every time I've ever heard that, when I read through the Gospels, my first question is, where? Okay, I hear that, where? Where am I following you, Jesus? And I love what this text tells us, because it tells us where. He says in the very next verse, verse 15, as he reclined at table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Two places. In, with. He says, follow me into the world where those who do not know me are, and go with me says that he reclined in the house and he was reclining, they were reclining with Jesus. Our call to follow him entails this, that we go with him into the world. So oftentimes we try to go into the world and we try to go without him. But why? Jesus is accused of eating with Tax collectors and sinners, and we don't have time to dive into that, but ultimately this, know that the Pharisees, the religious teachers of his day, saw Jesus and they said, shame on you for what you are doing. You are with the wrong crowd. And Jesus says, I have not come to be with the righteous. Because the righteous don't need a doctor, the sick do, the unrighteous. And so the question naturally becomes, well, does that mean that we should only be hanging out with people that are non-believers, that that's our call to commune with them. I think there's a place that we need to understand that yes, we are called to go into the world where the sinners are, but it's to make them come to Jesus so that we can commune with the saints. So there's a balance. If we are only with the saints, then we are not doing what we are called to do. And if we are only in the world and not communing with the saints, then we have neglected what we are called to be with. And it ends with that little phrase, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to make sinners righteous so he could commune with them. And it's his purpose. His call is, is, is the plan of redemption, restoration, reclamation. His place is in and with and His plan. Why? Why His purpose? Because they needed Him. Because we need Him. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to the sinners to make them saints that He might commune with them. So how do we take this, all of this and apply it to our lives? I think we start by asking a couple of questions. Number one is, can we recognize our need of a Savior due to the human condition? Can we, can we pause for a minute and ask ourselves, do, do I recognize that my human condition, a life filled with sin because of the fall of man, is utterly helpless 
It's hindered and it is hopeless without a Savior. We should read this story and think through that. And if we can honestly say yes, and we ask ourselves, well, have I come to the Savior? Have I done whatever I could to get to Jesus because He is the one and only way? That's the Gospel, brothers and sisters. That because of sin, there is nothing good that you could ever do apart from Jesus. And the beauty of the Gospel is this, that Jesus came, lived among us, was holy, perfect, and righteous, never once sinned. He was mercilessly crucified on a cruel cross. But it was not unintentional. It had a very specific purpose. And that purpose was that by His death He might make atonement, that He might make payment for all the sins of the world and thereby offer to all who would come to Him and cry out, Jesus, I need You, that we can have His righteousness. We only get to that place if we recognize the human condition. Second, can we act like the church? What are we doing to carry one another to Jesus? The church is filled the church is filled with broken people. It might be saints that have come to Jesus, but guess what? We're still broken people. And the moment we recognize that and, and understand that reality that we are broken people that are going to have bitterness from time to time, that are going to have uh, sinful thoughts from time to time, that are going to have struggles with greed, with materialism, with covetousness, with all kinds of things. They don't just disappear. The beauty is Jesus transforms us and He conforms us through, through our lives and, and if we are willing to, to, to yield to Him. But as we understand that, if we act like the church and we say, we are brothers and sisters that need to go to Jesus, can we carry one another to Him? Can we walk the difficulties with one another? Can we recognize that in times of troubles, we know that He is our only solution? That when we see a problem, instead of just having all kinds of philosophies and psychologies, which I'm not saying are necessarily bad, but if we can just comprehend that the most important thing is Jesus. And third, can we ask ourselves, can we recognize His call and reach beyond our borders of just Christian circles, that we might bring sinners into communion with Jesus. What a story. It's one of my favorite stories of the New Testament. Four determined men willing to push through, willing to do whatever it took to get, these, get this man in desperate need to Jesus. We could just see and act in such a way we would have an amazing church. One that glorifies God, fulfilling His purpose for not just our lives, for our ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that in spite of our condition, You looked at us and said, that is a worthwhile reclamation. And Father, we thank You for 
Jesus coming and living and dying and offering Himself as a sacrifice for our sins. We thank You that with faith we can believe and claim and cling to the righteousness of Jesus Christ and thereby stand before You, our Heavenly Father, as one of Your sons and daughters. And so Father, I pray that if there's anyone in here today that does not hold to that, has not come to a place where they say, I need Jesus, that today would be a day that they would say, my only hope is Jesus. That my life is filled with nothingness because without Him, there is no hope. And Lord, I pray for us as believers that we would come to You and say, Lord, would You take our church and would You make it a picture like these four men? Willing to carry, to lift, to remove, to lower ourselves to You. Father, we thank You. We ask for Your blessing in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.